0: to uh, continuing to gather this next year um, and continue to walk in resurrection power together as a family. Um, if you've been following along, uh, hopefully you have. Um, not sure how many of you have been following along, um, but we've been in Romans, uh, and if you've missed it, I, I think you should go back and watch some of them. Um, I think it's been one of our better series, honestly, um, but uh, today we're come to chapter seven. And I want to look at the first uh, six verses of Romans chapter 7. And this section in Romans chapter 7 is in the middle of a larger section. Um, It's in the middle of a larger section where the Spirit of God um, has been teaching through Paul uh, the reality that people uh, who have been justified by grace through faith um, now uh, have peace with God. And there's nothing that is able to separate them from that relationship. And this idea that uh, Paul, or not idea, but this truth that Paul's been, been sharing really comes up with two questions. And so Paul deals with two questions in this section, which kind of naturally arise from this truth. And, and the first question is this teaching is, does this teaching lead to immoral behavior? Because it seems to say that um, if we're saved by grace, everything in the end, it doesn't matter, so we can just do whatever we want. And so we've talked about that the last couple of weeks. Uh, and then The second question is, does it make the law useless? And so we talked about the first question in chapter 6, and and it's worth going back and listening to, like I just said, but but the short answer to that is the reverse is actually true. God saving us from slavery of sin and death and joining us to Jesus um, causes us to live for Him rather than to live in another way and to actually discipline ourselves um, to live in that manner. In chapter 7, where we're going to be for the next couple weeks, Paul addresses this second question, Um, does grace make the law useless? Now, I think as I think about that question, when I first started studying it this week, I was like, this is kind of just like a heady theological discussion. But I I think it's very easy for us to just kind of go there and just kind of think about it from that perspective and really disconnect ourselves from it. because I think we're not people who actually think about the law very much. And honestly, um, we live in and are affected by a culture that has very little concern for the law. Um, most of our culture uh, tries as hard as they can or, or dares to uh, to live in really a lawless manner. And I think even in the church, although um, we act as if we're, we're free from the law... We usually use that freedom in an incorrect manner, thinking we can live in grace however we want. I think in our culture and in the church, we have a a flippant view of sin, evident by how we actually interact with it. When we think about sin, we often think about how close can I get to the line? How close can I get to that without crossing it? You see, instead of seeing sin like this um, like this vicious alligator, just like to like chomp us and eat us, we act like uh, we ask ourselves, well, where's the line? How, how close can I get to the edge? How close can I get to the line? Right. And can can I get across? Can I can I quickly go touch its tail and come back across? Will, will it won't bite me. We, we look at it from that perspective. We look at, at someone way over there. And we're like, look at that guy playing in the middle of the cage with all those alligators around him. He's going to get eaten for sure. But I'm okay if I just stay here and do this and do this every once in a while. I used to have this conversation a lot uh, when I was a youth pastor. I was, like, cool back in the day. And people thought I was cool. Um <laughs> And I used to have this conversation a lot when it came to the subject of dating and physical contact. And the question always was, well, how far is too far? What, what can I do? What, what is actually considered sex? You see, the problem is they're asking the wrong question. Instead of running the other direction and getting to safety, when we see and hear that there's this giant alligator ready to us in the lake, we want to know how close we can get to the water. Can we put our toes in without getting eaten? And I think we continue to do that as adults. We get closer and closer to sinful things, and we think that we can handle it. And in the name of freedom, we straddle the line. John Piper says it this way. I think he says it best. Uh, I always like him anyway. He says, the justified don't make peace with sin. They make war on sin. And I think we need to ask ourselves, how dangerous do you think sin is? Does your life really reveal that you believe that? I heard someone say it's dangerous back there. Someone's right. Does your life believe that? Truman. Truman go for it, boy. You see, the issue and the question, does grace make the law useless, is not- just a theological concept for us to consider in our heads. It's a, it's a very relevant principle that affects everyday life and affects everyday followers of Jesus. Jared talked about that a few weeks ago about just thinking about something in Applebee's, but that's not the truth. This is something that affects our life every day. So I want to read Romans 7, 1 through 6 says this. I think it will be on the screen. If you can read that, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that blinds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit to death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit, and not of the old way of the written code. So, as we we start thinking about this, I want to start with through this passage and, and kind of an understanding of what it means when he says the law. And if you do some research, if you, if you read some commentaries, people that are way smarter than all of us, or maybe not some of you, um, but, but people who spend years looking at every word in every language agree here that the law actually refers to the law in general, not just the Old Testament law, not just the Old Testament Jewish law. The word brothers and sisters here refers actually to, to all Christians, to all believers. And so it's not just believing Jews that Paul is speaking to here when he talks about the law. He's writing to, to both groups of people. Now, the problem is that this, this word law is, is a loaded It's a word that elicits an emotional response. A loaded word means that it can elicit an emotional response either positive or negative. Like if I say flower you kind of have a positive response to that word. But if I just say plant, you're kind of more just neutral, right? Um, I don't know. I'm just making that up as I go, right? I didn't have that in my notes. I just came up where that came from. But but it's a word that carries carries baggage. It's, this word law carries baggage for many people. Um, it's a word, maybe a word in our culture that, that carries baggage, is, is the word wall. Right? When I say wall, you, you automatically have something that, that comes up in you, whatever side you're on on that. Say Trump, you may automatically think about the president rather than the word Trump, which means to like get over on someone or something. Anyway, <laughs> you see what I mean? The word carries a lot of weight. Anyway, so in the Jewish audience, it's been a while since I've taught up here, um, <laughs> When they thought about law, uh, their minds went quickly to Mount Sinai, uh, where God gave Moses the law. And if you remember the story of Mount Sinai, you remember that it didn't just come, the law didn't just come to Moses in a dream and, and these tablets just appeared at his bedside. God actually manifested himself in a, in a pretty frightening way at the of the and, and the Israelites look at this mountain and they, and they get super afraid. And, and they're like, Moses, you go up and talk to him. We're, we're not going up there. You go up and talk to him and whatever he tells you, we'll do it. And so they had a, they had a really high regard um, for the law of God. And they, they saw it as a, a great beneficial to man. And so they really would have struggled um, with, with the teaching that one could be justified apart from the law. Basically, how could such an important gift just be, be thrown aside? Now, the other side that made this word loaded for them is that although the, the law was good, it was also a tremendous burden. It, it imposed a, a strict code of, of legalistic behavior for the Jews. And if they took it seriously and viewed it, um, they actually called it a yoke. In, in Acts 15, uh, during the council in Jerusalem, where this topic of the law uh, comes up and the, and the first apostles are, are kind of debating over this, Peter stands up in verse 10 and says this. He says, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? You see, a yoke was, was a wooden uh, harness, if you don't know, it was a wooden harness that they would put over the, the shoulders. And heads of animals, uh, and then attach things to them to to pull around in hard labor. And it was, that was what it was like to live under the burden of the law, that you had this yoke of legalism around your neck that was a burden. So that's one side of it, but Paul is just just writing to Jews. He was also addressing Gentiles, non-Jewish people. So anyone who's not Jewish is a Gentile, just so you don't know. Um, And so the law in Romans is, is bigger than just the Old Testament law there. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who argues basically on this topic, that, that every person on this planet recognizes and feels bound to live by a moral standard that they call basically the law of human nature. And he says this, it's evident by the way that people argue. In mere Christianity, he says this, when talking about this stuff, you said, they say things like, How would you like it if I did the same thing to you? Yeah. That's my seat. I was there first. Yeah. Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you some of mine. I'm pretty sure that I've heard some of those things in my house, um, <laughs> probably this week. Um, but I think we, we, although people basically disagree on certain details, Everyone has a standard, a standard of what is right and what is wrong. And they expect other people to believe it and to live under that standard, whatever they, whatever they may think that standard is. As I thought about that, um, we're going to try to get back where we're answering questions again. What are some ways that you, that you see this played out in our culture right now, where people have a, have a sense of right or wrong that they hold other people to? I think the pandemic has revealed a lot of these things. I'm not wearing a mask right now. Yeah, for sure. That's a standard that people judge other people on or not. If you don't have a mask on, you're, you're not caring for someone. All right? What else? Yeah, if you're not reacting properly or the way, the way that I would react to it, then you don't care about it and you're, yeah, you're being offensive. Yeah, yeah. We, we say no judgment, but, but how often are we critical of others? Anytime you're critical of someone else, you've set a standard that they haven't lived up to. What else? What are some ways? All the different types of parenting styles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're judgy of how someone parents their kids, for sure. What, yeah. In your <laughs> fridge. Yeah, if you don't have organic, like, grass-fed beef, like, you don't really care about the environment, right? Like, we we have all kinds of things, right? All kinds of of moral standards. I think even when you, you suffer from depression, it shows really the heart of the problem that it's futile to live to some moral standard that you've set or someone else set for you. And so we all live in some type of law. The reality is that, that we're all under the law. The Jews are, were under the Old Testament law. And everyone else, and I think them as well, were, were under the law of human nature. And the problem has been that Romans has been telling us that the law can't save us. It not only can't save us, it can't sanctify us. And In one way, to, I think it's, it's easy in one way to say, you know, like, the answer to a holy life is not the law. But now, how are we supposed to live? What do we do with that? The law still, I think, hangs around our heads like a yoke. And this is where chapter 7 comes in and tells us what the solution is. And chapter 7 in his first six verses says the solution is death. Paul uses death or dying or dead seven times in six verses. And he implies it more than that. Paul's actually telling us in these few verses, that we die to one in order to be freed for another. We must die to the law in order to be freed to Jesus. The only way to be free of the law is by death. That's what Paul is saying, which is he exactly implies that in verse one, when he asked that question, the rhetorical question. You know that the law has no authority over someone as long as that only as long as that person lives. I think it's pretty obvious answer to this rhetorical question. You can't require someone to do anything or punish anyone for doing something or for not doing something if they're dead. You could try, but it's pointless. Our country, there's there's nothing more a law can do to you. Once you're dead, sure, you can execute a judgment against a dead person, but you're not punishing them. They're already dead. The only punishment comes against their estate or against the person that that may receive their stuff. See, dead people don't care about stuff. They They don't care about their honor. They don't care about what people say about them. They're dead. Only alive people care about that things. Those kind of things. And only alive people can be affected by laws. Death is final when it comes to laws. It's a, it's a universal reality. This is Paul's argument. Then in verses 2 and 3, he gives an illustration or, or an example from, from basically common experience that demonstrates reality. And he uses this example of someone who's married. Now, before I go any further, as I was reading that, you may have already thought about these things, I want to quickly address uh, some errors that people have made uh, when they look at these verses and they pull them out of context or they look at them from their own cultural lens. Paul, using this example here, is he's not being a sexist. He's not saying that that this woman is bound to her husband or, or that she's a lesser person. He's, he's giving us um, just an illustration. It's not a biblical analogy where we assign meaning to each piece and part of it. It's an illustration. It's just a common example of how death breaks law. And it still holds true today. When, when you get married in this country, it's a legal binding agreement. You're bound to one another by law. It's why the pastor who or whoever is performing the, the ceremony will say uh, so like this, I was used to say this by the power invested me in the state of California. I now pronounce and then you may kiss the bride, or whatever.? right? Uh, it's why at the end of that, uh, or before you even go to get married, you have to go sign legal documents after the ceremony, that those documents and that ceremony is recognized as under the government and gives you certain rights in, certain rights under the law. And in order to break that that binding agreement before you die, you have to go before a judge and you have to have a a lawyer or someone who interprets the law for you um, on your behalf to try to break this legal binding agreement. You can go back to verses 2 and 3 and you can flip the word husbands and wife in this illustration. It still works the same way. Either would be an adulteress or an adulterer if they slept with someone else. And either is free from the law of marriage when the other one dies. What Paul is stressing is the law of marriage is, is not violated when a spouse remarries after death. Rather, the law of marriage is actually upheld. And that person is free from the law that bound them to their first husband or wife. So that they might actually marry another person legally. Now, remember, in the context here, Paul is addressing objections, calling the law useless. And so when he uses this this illustration, he basically is saying that's far from the case. And he's telling us in the case of the gospel, the law is actually fully honored, it's satisfied, it's upheld, and at the same time, it's actually liberating. Death gives you the ability to both honor the previous law and then to step forward into a new relationship with Jesus. You see, through the faith and grace in Jesus the old law. And Jesus' death becomes our death. We died to Him, to the law, and we rise with Him in a new relationship. See, death is the only way we could terminate the relationship we have with the law. We get to enter into a new relationship with Jesus, who is a better husband. See, verse 4 through 6 goes on and tells us, really, the object of this relationship now. It says that in order that we might bear fruit to God. You see, the reason God set it's free from the law that we were bound to wasn't just so that we could walk around in freedom like we talked about last week, basically trying to straddle the line or, or seeing how close to that we could get to The purpose, the object was that we might be joined to Jesus and be fruitful. You see, the amazing, how as amazing, amazing as it is, the, the union that we get now with Jesus, this sentence, the emphasis in this sentence is actually in bearing fruit. It's actually in being fruitful. I say as we think about this idea in today's, I want to say today's self-centered culture, even as Christians, when we answer the question, why did God save us? I think we often and strictly think about it in terms of God's love for us. Right? And that's not completely wrong. Jesus said that for God so loved the world that he gave his. Right, That whoever shall believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's true. God does love us, but it goes further than that. God loved us and Jesus died for us so that we might be holy and so that we might live for him. I told you earlier in these verses that this context was in the larger discussion that began in chapter 6 of what it means to live practically in righteousness. Which is actually bearing fruit for God. And so, what Paul is saying here in this passage is it's impossible to bear fruit as long as you're married to the law. You're, or as long as you're married to the law, as long as you're married to your old sinful nature, that husband that is impotent, it's unable to bear fruit. But now, through the death of Jesus, we get to enter into a new, fruitful relationship with Jesus. And God says to us, just like he said to Adam and Eve in the garden, fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Not, Not with physical offspring, but with the offspring of righteousness that's produced by the Holy Spirit. See, the life of righteousness and holy living is actually the fruit of our union with Christ. I think there's so many illustrations in the Bible about um, what it means to be saved, but I think the illustration of marriage is probably one of the greatest ones. You see, Jesus is often portrayed in the Bible as a, as a passionate lover, as a, as a devoted, faithful husband to the church. And God's people are portrayed as his bride with whom he, he is vowed to for all eternity. And so Paul is using this illustration of marriage here to show us how this new relationship actually produces holiness. One of the things that has happened traditionally for centuries when, when two people get married is usually the bride takes on the name of the husband. And basically what happens is that actually demonstrates that she's joined a new family. Now that doesn't happen all the time now, but 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 and quite as much now you used to this. Man, let me start over. Um, probably not quite as much as in ancient times, but people are still very proud of their names. People love to trace their, their family histories and find out where their name comes from. Ancestry.com is big business, right? And all the other websites, they're, they're making millions of millions of dollars, people looking back at their ancestry and their, their family name. When I was a kid, uh, my grandmother on my father's side had this, this, I don't know, it was probably about this big, like this, framed document on the wall that proved that she was a daughter of the revolution. And she would show us that when we came into the house, and she would tell my sisters, she's like, this is really valuable. It makes you daughter of the revolution as well. This is who you are. Be proud that you're part of this family. The name was very important. I think even in pop culture, names are still important. I mean, we think about, oh, she's a Kardashian. It like brings up something, right? Right? Think about Meghan Markle. No matter how hard she tries to fight, honestly, no one cared who Meghan Markle was until she became part of the royal family. No one listened to anything she said. No one. You didn't even know who she was. Names still carry a lot of weight in our culture. And see, the good news is this in Philippians 2. Philippians 2 9 says this God tells us that Jesus has been given a name that is above every name. When you're in Jesus, you now bear that name. You've gone from Miss or Mr. Sinner to Miss or Mr. Christian. That's hard to get out. Right? Your name has changed. In Ephesians 2:12 it says we're no longer foreigners and aliens but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. By our union with Jesus, we have become sons and daughters of the King of the universe. And our lives now represent that name. I think honestly one of the reasons people understand or misunderstand who God is It's because people who bear his name act like children of Satan. Instead of striving to live their lives, they bear the name of Jesus. And it happens all the time. And people say they're just hypocritical. And it's true. Because you're actually bearing the wrong name. Instead of striving for the fruit of righteousness in your life. Verse 5 tells us that when we are under the law, the fruit of the law bore death. But verse 6 says this, we've been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. God is basically telling us right here how we bear the fruit of Jesus. And it's by aligning your hearts and your minds and your actions with Him in the power of the Holy Spirit. Last week, I I talked about about striving in freedom to live in obedience. And I sense when we often think about striving, we go to legalism. But this isn't... Legalism is what the law is. Verse says, This new act of service is not the old letter of the law. It's a newness of spirit. See, the point of, of getting out from under the law by... Law, is to actually put your life on a whole new path. The path of the Spirit, not a path of legally following a law. The reason that being under and not under the law actually produces righteousness instead of uh, lawlessness is that God has actually poured His Spirit into our hearts. He's poured His Spirit into the hearts of justified people. And that's what the Spirit does. It works a newness from the inside out. See, the law was always from the outside trying to do this. The Spirit works the opposite direction. The Spirit writes the law of God in our hearts. It shapes our wit, our affections into a lifetime walk with Christ. A lifetime of loving and serving Him. In Jesus, we're free. From the law, that we 're free from the law that was carved in stone we 're freed from the law that was written in human nature we 're free from any external list or duties that would press on your will from the outside to comply when you really have no heart to comply. You have died to that. Death has happened, and you are now alive in jesus you 've been married to Jesus and given a new name, the power of the Spirit so that you might bear fruit to God. Please understand, you are inhabited by the Spirit of God, and He is not neutral, and He is not passive. He's at work in you to create a newness of mind and a new heart that loves Him and serves Him. As a Christian, you are not just some kind of neutral, free-floating moral agent that says, I can do whatever I want. Let me so that I can sing some more, so more grace will be found. No, you are justified by faith and you are united by Christ and given in marriage to him through grace. And he is now satisfying you with his love. and you now bring forth fruit in your fellowship with him. If you go back to chapter five, which is part of this section, um, Paul talks about that we've gained access by faith into grace. And one of the realities from that statement is that because now the bride of Christ, we become the children of God, and we get to come to God. We have access to God, and we get to come to God through prayer. If you look at the way Sarah mentioned this this morning, but if you look at the way God describes prayer in the Bible, you'll see that prayer is way more than just communication with God. It's a place where the authentic relationship with the God of the universe takes Prayer is is realigning our hearts and and basically recognition of of who's in control and it reveals our total dependence on Him. For all of life. But prayer not only does that, it actually moves us to action. In almost every story in the Bible where you see characters pray, Jesus included, what happens is they take action and they walk boldly into life and they bear fruit. You can go back, I, I would say everyone, but I haven't checked everyone, but I guarantee 99.99%, probably 100%. That's what's happens when people pray. They move into action boldly and bear fruit. Sarah shared this, but we're starting a 6 week's journey together in prayer. I know, I can't talk this morning. I need some water. I need a mask or something to give me some more humidity, some moisture. I want to call you to engage in that exercise. If you're not part of a missional community, jump into one for these six weeks. If you're not part of a DNA, we'll get you a part of one where you can connect and be a part of prayer DNA. Plan to be at these gatherings because we're going to be engaging in prayer as well. The things that we practice each week in prayer, we're going to practice together corporately each week. God has set us with an objective that we would bear the fruit of righteousness. And prayer is one of the main ways that we live our lives together in His resurrection power. And the good news is that the God of the universe is going to one day throw the most amazing wedding reception, the best party the world has ever seen. I've been to some amazing wedding receptions. One I went to, yeah, yours was great. It was amazing. It was, it was really amazing. I loved the photo booth. Um, Poli was killer. I do remember that. My, I've been to weddings. cost three or $400,000. And the, and the reception went like all night long. This party is going to be way better than that. It's not even going to be close. It's the best party this world has ever seen. And there's going to be billions and billions of guests. And the angels are going to be there. And they're going to serve all the guests. And Jesus, the bridegroom, is going to be sitting at the right hand of God. And if you are in Jesus, you will be there. Nothing can keep you from that amazing celebration. Because you are his bride. If you are in Jesus, that is where you are headed. And the time is now that we get to use every moment that you have to prepare like every other bride to start bearing the fruit of righteousness. Living as people who depend on the Spirit to walk in a new way. Calling on Him through prayer to live a life of repentance and faith and daily walking with Him in the good news so that the Gospel would so penetrate our heart that we would reveal and bear fruit of the name of Jesus. A name that we never wear around our neck. Not as not as a yoke, but as a beautiful piece of jewelry. Don't fiddle around in your life seeing how close you can walk to the line. Thinking that sin won't eat you. It will. Run into the arms of Jesus because there is joy everlasting there. He is the only one that is faithful. And he's the only one that can change you and give you his spirit so that you might bear fruit in this world and in the world to come. You pray with me. Our Father, I thank you that we get to bear the name of Jesus now. Uh, Father, I thank you that we have died to sin. We've died to the law. Father, may we be a people that bear the fruit of righteousness in our life. May you change us. May you make us different in every relationship, in the relationships in our home, in our workplaces, in our schools, and in the city.